M&A to a large extent is like musical chairs. You know, sometimes you can have a better company, but if you're selling into a worse market or you're selling to a buyer set that's already fully acquired other companies that provide your technology, you may not have an exit partner. Welcome to the Swisspreneur Show, a podcast about startup stories and learnings from experienced entrepreneurs. Here's your host, Sylvan. John, a very warm welcome to the Swisspreneur Show. Thank you so much for making the time. Yeah, glad to be here. Thanks for having me. You are the director and co-founder at Minalto Advisors, a technology M&A advisory firm headquartered in Silicon Valley but also with a presence in Europe. Before we talk about the M&A process, you actually graduated from Miami University. You then worked for Deloitte and PageMill Partners before you co-founded Minalto Advisors. So my first question is, what makes the M&A world more exciting and fulfilling than consulting? Yeah, good, good question. And just to clarify for everybody, I went to Miami University of Ohio, not Florida. So I was surrounded by corn and not not beaches. <laughs> um, I've effectively spent my entire career in M&A. So I started my career in management consulting at Deloitte. But even while there, I was working on predominantly strategy and M&A projects. You know, in the case of M&A, large scale mostly uh, back-end integration projects. So after the deal got completed, the consultants come in to figure out how all the pieces fit together. Mm -hmm. And so I was actually working on a project at the time for Caterpillar. They had acquired another big integrated mining company and was driving around all the different coal mining sites in the Eastern US. And I loved the M&A work, but I really wanted to be on the deal formation end. And I also wanted to be in a sector that was a lot more interesting to me. Coal mining was not anything that I had a, a particular interest in. And so I jumped um, about 12 years ago to a firm called PageMill Partners. It was an M&A boutique based in Silicon Valley, uh, doing a lot of the same work that I do today. And then myself and a couple other folks left PageMill uh, six and a half years ago now to found Manalto Advisors. And so Manalto Advisors is a sell-side M&A advisory firm. We focus just on IT technology. So when I talk today, it'll be all about IT tech. We don't do pharma. We don't do bio many of the other things that are popular here in Switzerland, but within IT, we're fairly broad. So we'll do everything from uh, university spin out deep tech all the way up through consumer focused, um, you know, kind of B2C oriented apps or, or other tech companies. Fantastic. I'm really excited to talk about that specific focus that you have. And Minolta Advisors presents itself as a different type of technology M&A advisory firm. So of course, the questions come up, what makes it different? Sure. Yeah. So that when we founded the firm, you know, we, we spent a lot of time discussing and thinking about this. And the tagline of our firm is mindful M&A. And I think that really permeates uh, how we think about M&A, how we work with clients, when we work with clients. And it probably uh, requires a little bit of unpacking to understand. So typically, when people think of M&A, they always orient around this concept of process. So it's always what type of process are you going to run? Is it an auction? Is it a targeted solicitation? Is it what, whatever type of process? Mm -hmm. And that's important. That's certainly important. Um, however, we found that many of our best transactions came where we were able to give the company really good strategic advice well in advance of an M&A process. 
So for example, you know, if you have six, 12, 18 months in advance of M&A, there's so many other things that you're able to, to change or levers that you're able to pull as it relates to that company's planning. You know, if you think about anything in your life, any big event, you know, whether it's buying a house or finding somebody that you, you know, date or marry or accepting a job, so much of it comes down to timing. And when all you're doing is focusing on process as an advisor, the one thing you have very little influence over is timing. So if somebody calls you up and says, hey, we have a company that we need to sell or want to sell for whatever reason, there's usually a forcing function to that, either positive or negative. On the positive side, it could be we've been approached by a buyer. On the negative side, it could be we're running out of cash. Right. But as the advisor, you say, okay, you know, we're either going to take this on or we're not, but you really can't influence the timing. If you've met that company 12 months, 24 months in advance of that, you can really help lay the groundwork strategically to ensure that they do a lot of things, or in some cases, they don't do things that don't make sense, such that when you get to that critical M&A time, the company's really well positioned. So that's kind of become the hallmark of our firm is, is we spend a lot of time in this pre-M&A advisory work um, in order to help position companies to be bought, not sold, which is an old adage that you'll hear, but we actually really believe in. That makes so much sense. At the same time, that also requires an upfront investment from your side, I assume, right? Because you probably don't really get paid or not really paid for the time and the upfront investment. That's right. So we still monetize on the back end of a deal. It's it's you know a percentage of the deal value based on how much we sell it for. Mm-hmm. So a lot of this work, you know, our belief uh, is that um, you know that that work that we put in upfront ultimately leads to a, a higher chance of success at a higher valuation. But there is also some trust involved in that because, as you noted, most of that work that we're doing, we're actually not charging for. So we're doing it on a on a trust basis where you know we show value to the client. The client, you know, understands how we work. We develop a really good relationship that evolves over time and ultimately consummates in a successful deal. Another thing that makes you unique is that you not only have a presence in Silicon Valley, but actually also here in Switzerland. Why was Switzerland the right place for you to have, you know, a second headquarters? Yes, yes, yes. So our firm is headquartered in the Valley. That's where I moved here from. So I moved to Zurich about three and a half years ago. And uh, there, there, there's several reasons for the move, but the predominant one is that our firm and specifically the, the team that I work on over time has continued to do more and more work with European clients. So if you go back you know, five, six years ago, it was probably one out of every four deals that we did was based in Europe. Fast forward to today, that's probably one out of two, if not 60%. Wow. And all over Western Europe, so Switzerland, Germany, UK, Ireland, uh, we just did a deal in, in Amsterdam, we've done stuff in the Nordics. And so we were always flying over from the Bay Area and doing what I called speed dating trips. So we'd fly <laughs> into London, spend two days there, a day in Cambridge, Berlin, Zurich. And on top of those trips being exhausting, I'm surprised I have any hair left. Uh, you know, we, we really did miss a lot of opportunities because, again, so much of M&A is time sensitive. So if you're not there, you know, in front of the people or able to talk to the people uh, imminently, sometimes there's opportunities that pass you by. So we made the decision a couple of years ago to, to have somebody over here. I had spent a fair portion of my childhood growing up in Europe. Um, I was also really interested in doing this. I loved working with European clients. And so we made the decision to open something in Europe. And so the question was then, well, where? And so in a lot of respects, you know, London made a lot of sense. We do a lot of work there. Um, But when we looked at it, you know, we ultimately decided on Zurich for a couple of reasons. Um, I'd say some of them more, you know, professional and others more personal. 
Um, on the professional side, really excited about the ecosystem here. We think there's a lot of, of positive dynamics, uh, and especially when you look over time, positive dynamics that continue to evolve and develop. If you look at you know number of companies funded, amount of, of capital raised, mm -hmm. even if you look at you know some of the universities, the the way that they're able to spin companies out, the amount of talent here, all of those elements contribute to a successful ecosystem. So you know you, you kind of see this develop over time, but the one thing that we still see a big gap for is exits. Mm -hmm. And so you know when you think about you know funding or venture funding in particular as a funnel, there's a lot of companies that come in at series you know seed or pre-seed, and then fewer that get to A and B and so forth. And ultimately, you want to have a, a really strong liquidity funnel. Mm -hmm. And so that's something that we thought that here in Switzerland, where we, we had already done several transactions and subsequently to that have done several more, uh, where we thought that we could add a lot of value. So um, that was the professional side. Personally, my wife and I were about to have our first child, and this is just an amazing place to raise a family. So both in terms of the access you know, in and out of the city, the access to the mountains, we love the outdoors. And it's really unique. It reminds me a bit of the Bay Area in, the, in that way where, you know, you can be in the middle of the city and then 30, 45 minutes later be somewhere in the case of the Bay Area along the coast, but here, you know, along the lake or in the mountains where it's it's a, a far cry away. So we, uh, we've really enjoyed that. And I think, you know, COVID aside, taking advantage of that as much as we could. That sounds like a fantastic combination of, you know, business goals, but also personal goals at the same time. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, Zurich's also very centrally located. So when I'm traveling to Berlin or London or Dublin, it's so easy to get in and out of, take the train right under the airport. And right. as an American, that took a little bit of getting used to because I'm so used <laughs> to having my car and driving everywhere. But in many yeah. cases, taking the train is actually um, more efficient. Absolutely. And today we also, of course, want to talk about the M&A process. So one of the most important things you mentioned before is to prepare for an M&A process. And that usually starts already well ahead of the actual start of the process. So what are the key things that you recommend doing to prepare a company for a future M&A? Yeah, yeah, it's a, a really good question. So the first, you know, the first thing is, is focus on building a valuable business. So M&A is the byproduct of building something that's valuable. And one of the things that I tell companies often is, is focus on things that are for you, your key differentiators. So at the end of the day, if your company is the same as every other company in your sector, or you're one of many companies, what is it that makes you really unique and special? And so a lot of times companies are focused on, you know, growing revenue and all things that are good, you know, growing the team, raising capital, growing revenue. Mm -hmm. But one of the things they often don't focus on is, as I said, differentiators, but also understanding a little bit about their buyer landscape. So if I go back to this concept that I referenced earlier of good companies are bought, not sold, it is very difficult for a buyer to buy a company if they do not know that the company exists. And this is something that I see in Switzerland. I see it all over Europe is that when you ask people, you, you, you know, say to them, which companies do you think would be the best buyers? And this is almost irrespective of sector. And they'll go through and list, you know, four or five companies. Mm -hmm. And you say, okay, of those companies, what are your relationships with them? Have you interfaced with them? Do you compete against them in deals? And I would say at least 50% of the time, if not more, they've had little to no interaction at all with those buyers. And so, you know, it always leads me to ask the question, the, the natural question, I think, which is, well, how are they going to buy you, again, if they don't know that you exist? You're not on the map. No, you're not on the map. And, and I think this is a frustration of, of many European startups is that oftentimes they'll see deals that get done in Silicon Valley where, 
you know, some companies bought for, you know, 200, just to pick a number, $200 million. And they say, our technology is so much better than theirs. <laughs> and that could very well be true. In many right. cases, it probably is. But then again, the follow-up question is, well, did that buyer even know you? Have you ever interfaced mm -hmm. with that buyer? And nine times out of 10, the answer is no. And so I think there's a lot of this, this proactive kind of planning, even if you're not looking to quote unquote, sell the company, this proactive planning that, that takes place where you're not only building a valuable company, but then you're understanding how to articulate or demonstrate that value to the market. You know, specifically for deep tech companies, which I know there's a lot of here in Switzerland, one of the things that I'll, I'll tell them is, what are you world's first, only, or best at? Mm -hmm. So if there's a way, you know, a lot of these companies are, are either run by people that are have masters or PhDs, um, very, very intelligent people, but ultimately you have to be able to communicate the value to a buyer, typically a business unit sponsor or somebody mm -hmm. who may not be as technical as you. And so that's one framework to use to, to think about how to do that. You know, what are we world's first at? What are we the only one in the world to do? Or what can we, you know, demonstrate that we're the best at? And to the extent that you can support that, not only qualitatively, but also quantitatively with, you know, data or with demos, mm -hmm. um, it, it can be really effective. Yeah. I have a follow-up question on this relationship part. How do you recommend to set that up? Because I can imagine many companies here in Switzerland, they are very good at the technology part, mm -hmm. but they're also a bit afraid to you know, reach out to a potential competitor to have a relationship to them. That's why they probably don't even try yeah. to establish that connection. How do you recommend to do that, to have a good balance between friendly exchange and being on the map, but also not giving away too much. Sure. Yeah, no, and it, it's every situation's unique in that regard. But I would say generally, uh, there, there's a couple pieces of advice I would give. The first is that you only have one chance to make a good first impression. So if you've just founded the company, you're just getting going, you've got great ideas, but little to demonstrate, it's probably a step or two too early. Right. So there is, a, there is a too early, because once you meet these, these buyers and start to establish the relationships or potential partners, they don't have to all be buyers, but partners, customers, mm -hmm. they're going to measure your progress over time. So if you're telling them, hey, I'm going to develop X by this date and Y by this date, and you come back at that date, or they may even reach back out to you at that date and say, hey, have you developed this? And if you say, no, actually I haven't for these reasons and all the excuses start coming, you're already behind the eight ball. You're already mm -hmm. kind of working from behind. So there, there is, for some companies, it's, it's too early. But once you get to that stage where you really have something to discuss, really have something to demonstrate, um, I think it, it behooves the company to be strategic about who they target. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is almost all startups to some extent are resource constrained right? Either don't have enough people, don't have enough capital, don't have enough time, don't have enough of all of those. Right. And so, you know, and, and for a lot of these sectors, if you take, you know, software, for example, there's literally hundreds and hundreds of companies that are either in your space, adjacent to you, ahead of you, behind you, you know, you could link into, there's, there's so many people you could target. Mm -hmm. And so I think the, the right approach is to really sit down probably with the management team, some of your investors, advisors, uh, people like me who understand the exit side and say, okay, of all the people that we could be talking to, who are the ones that we should talk to? And you get a, you get input from a lot of different people. So you get people who really understand the competitive dynamics of the market. I would argue as a, as a management team member, you should understand the dynamics of, of your market. But you also get the input of people like me who understand the exit market. Because for example, there are some companies where they could be fantastic customers or partners of yours 
But if you look at their M&A history, they've never demonstrated any proclivity to acquire companies at an early stage, mm-hmm. uh, if, if in fact you're an earlier stage company. Or you may look at you may look at some and you think, hey, you know, this could be a really interesting, you know, partner for us. But in fact, they never actually partner with other companies. They kind of do everything themselves. So I think it's this this big fact gathering exercise to then really have a strategy. And in the case where companies are resource constrained, I always think of it as a Venn diagram. And there's kind of three circles to the to the diagram. You've got one that's buyers, potential buyers, one that's customers or potential customers and partners slash investors. Mm-hmm. And if you think about it, you know, if you have a limited amount of time and, and capital, you want to target companies that at least occupy two of those buckets, if not all three. Mm-hmm. And what I often find is companies tend to be very reactive and not proactive, meaning that whichever company is the first one that reaches out to them, that's who they spend most of their time with. But at the end of the day, that may not be the best company or best subset of companies to be spending, you know, significant resource on. So there's a very interesting key takeaway. Yeah, there's 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 more of a strategic orientation required. Yeah, definitely. You also said the right time to sell. Timing is so crucial. So when is the right time to sell from a company perspective? Because there's also a lot of controversy around that, right? Many people say, well, the, the timing is probably like never really right. Like you want to get a, you know, you know comparing to something, there's no real right timing. How does that look from a, from a company perspective? Is there such a thing as the right timing to sell? It's a really good question. And like a lot of these, I'm going to say it depends. You know, one of the things about M&A is it really is part art and part science. So every circumstance is different. Every company's different. Buyer's different. Situation's different. At different times, the market's different. And M&A to a large extent is like musical chairs. You know, sometimes you can have a better company, but if you're selling into a worse market or you're selling to a buyer set that's already fully acquired other companies that provide your technology, you may not have an exit partner. So there's so many dynamics to factor in. Um, But so that I don't keep saying it depends for everything, uh, there is a way that I think about this, uh, which is I, I always orient a sale around what I call either a promise value sale or a financial value sale. And a promise value sale is when you're selling a company typically quite early for the strategic value that it provides to the buyer. Mm-hmm. So in advance of that, you know, the company has built technology, they've in some way validated or demonstrated that technology, and then the buyer is able to see how they would plug that technology, software, whatever it is that they're buying into their uh, into their product, into their ecosystem, whatever it is that they're operating, mm-hmm. and they're willing to pay a strategic premium for that. Yeah. So those transactions are typically not based off financial multiples. Oftentimes, the companies, uh, the, the sellers will have a couple million of revenue or even less, mm-hmm. but you can get really good outcomes there. We've sold companies at that stage for you know $200 million that have very little revenue. Yeah. Um, on the other side, you've got a financial value sale, which is what people typically think of more when they when they uh, think about M and A, and that is typically some sort of sale based off a of financial multiple, multiple of ARR, revenue, EBITDA, depending on on the sector. Um, and those sales, you're able to look and, and reference typically more comparable transactions, depending on how big the company is, public comparables. There's other more academic valuation methodologies like discounted cash flow and other things. Mm-hmm. Um, but between those two is what we call the valley of death. And if you think about it, you know, let's say that you're at this promise value stage where, where really you have a really unique technology. It's the only one in the world. And a buyer could immediately plug this in and, and sell, you know, a thousand more of X or a million more of Y. 
But let's say you're contemplating, okay, do we sell or we raise? And you say, we're going to raise capital. And you go out and raise, a, just to pick a number, 25 million franc round. The day before you raise that round, the expectations are at a certain level and the company's worth a certain amount. The day after you raise the round, the company is the identical company to what it was the day before, but the expectations are now significantly higher. And a lot of times to get from that promise value to financial value stage, the company has to invest a lot in building out functions that they probably have not invested much in to date. Sales teams, marketing teams, HR, finance, you know, regulatory in some cases. And so that's why companies often go through this, what we call valley of death, because they're deploying a lot of capital to build up the infrastructure that they need to, to be able to build a robust, sustainable business. Mm -hmm. um, but it takes time for all of that infrastructure to then support revenue generation to a level where you get to that financial value stage. Yeah. So, and, and as a company, you don't always have to just pick one or the other. I think there's ways to, to um, keep both doors open. But I think it's, again, going back to the M&A planning piece, always assessing where are we on the journey and, you know, given exit windows, given our skill set, given our aspirations, given the market, all of these factors, where do we fit, you know, vis-a-vis -vis this, this kind of exit timeline. That's so fascinating what you just described. I think that's really valuable to see that strategic, but also the financial perspective. Then, of course, the question comes up. If you focus on this financial perspective, what are some KPIs that you need to hit before you're actually ready to be sold? Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a good question and it depends on the sector. You know, for enterprise software, it looks different from deep tech or semiconductor. Um, but I, I would say generally, uh, and, and maybe if I talk a little bit about software, which again, I know is anyway very broad, but let's say enterprise or B2B software, mm -hmm. uh, at a minimum, you typically need to have product market fit. You need to have at least a couple million of revenue and some operating history for buyers to even consider you as kind of a, a, an add-on, um, whether that's truly an add-on in the case of like a private equity firm that would be bolting you on to one of their existing platforms, or in the case of a strategic, including you as part of a broader portfolio. Okay. Um, what's interesting about different buyers, though, is often they'll have different thresholds. I mean, I almost think of buyers like people and that they have different personalities. Mm -hmm. So certain buyers will say, hey, you know, we want to see a company that has at least, and I'm, I'm making all these numbers up, but, you know, at least 10 million of ARR and growing at least 50%. For us, that's really important. Mm -hmm. You have other buyers and, and they really orient around, you know, scale and growth. Mm -hmm. You have other buyers that will say, you know, look, for us, it's it's kind of this blend of, of profit and, and growth. So you'll hear often for, you know, SaaS companies in particular, rule of 40 or similar types of of methodologies to, to say, okay, how capital efficient is this business relative to the growth that it's delivering? Mm -hmm. You'll have other buyers that say it must be profitable. Um, so, so you've got all these buyers that have different perspectives, different views on what they'll even consider. And again, I think that's why it's really important to understand for the buyers in your ecosystem, what is it that they're interested in? And part of the way to, to understand that is to speak with people like me who have, you know, oftentimes dealt with these companies to say, look, given where you're at, these are the types of people that should be interested or could be interested. A lot of times companies think, well, I can, I can you know, tell this really great narrative to XYZ buyer that is phenomenal. It makes so much sense. And they're mm -hmm. nine times out of 10, they're right. The problem is that buyer will only, you know, may only look at companies with 30 million of revenue. And if this company has 10, they're not even close to 30. Yeah. So a lot of it is, is, again, kind of understanding the market dynamics, the buyer dynamics in order to make sure that uh, all of that aligns, but also make sure you're not wasting your time. 
from a founder's perspective, that's really hard to do, right? Because you have literally usually no experience. You have no data that you can just go on Crunchbase and see, oh, what what's like your threshold that you're yeah. looking for? So how do you find that out? Except, of course, working with someone like you who, who has the network and who knows it. Is there any way to do it yourself or to get close to that from a strategic perspective? Yeah, it, it it's difficult, to be honest, because M&A, unlike, you know, real estate transactions or other sorts of sales, it's a fairly illiquid market um, in the sense that every deal is very bespoke and unique. Every asset's unique. So it, the, the data set is not quite as good as, you know, if you take the other extreme of the spectrum, you know, publicly traded companies, right? The stock is trading every day. So you always right. know what it's worth. Um, but that being said, one of the things that I think founders can do, and and without subscribing to certain data sources, you may not get the full picture, but you may get a sense. I always think it makes sense to to go and at least look, has the the company that you're talk, talking to acquired other companies? Mm-hmm. Are they well-funded? I mean, there's a lot of times where I'll, I'll speak to a company that's been approached and they've been approached by a company that maybe only has raised 20 or 30 million. And you talk to the potential seller and they think, well, you know, we're worth at least 60 or 70 million. And it's like, <laughs> but this com- this quote unquote buyer has yeah. only raised 20 or 30. There's Doesn't just the, the math doesn't work there. Yeah. So, um, so, so while you can't get maybe every single data point, I do think there's some things that you can do to start to educate yourself on who's active in the space. Mm-hmm. Also, I'm a big believer in, you know, participating in the ecosystem, trade shows, conferences, especially now that things have opened back up. But even if you're doing them virtually, start to understand what people are looking for. Start to understand where the pain points are, not just you know with customers, but also with potential buyers. Yeah. I mean, you might see that there's a, 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 a quote unquote competitor of yours that uh, you continue to you know see in the market, hear from them, hear from uh, cu- you know potential customers of, of yours, but also of theirs. They may have a specific gap that you uniquely fill. And so that could be an opportunity. So I think a lot of it is just, you know, awareness. And it's a set of activities that when you think about building a company, it's not the first one that comes to mind. You know, again, you're thinking about all the infrastructure you have to put in place, sales, all of those things. But as the company matures, it needs to be on on people's radar probably more than it is for most companies. And are there any favorite data sources that you use for these kind of information gatherings? Because most of the information is not publicly available, right? Yeah. So, so there, there are a couple that you can look at publicly. So, um, and, and it really depends on the buyer. So for the really, really big buyers, you know, if you think of the biggest tech companies, most of the deals that they do are undisclosed. Mm-hmm. However, if you actually just Google, like uh, Google lists of, you know, acquisitions made by certain buyers, you, you can actually find some of those. For companies that are a little bit on the smaller side uh, that are public, you can often look at their financial filings to see what they've acquired. Um, sometimes it will disclose the price, sometimes it won't. Mm-hmm. You'd be surprised how much you can find just Googling around if you're not subscribing to a data source. But you know, again, the other way is to talk to somebody who does subscribe to a data source who can help you out in that regard. Um, but I'd even take it a step further than that, which is to say, while you can look at a buyer's history and, and start to understand maybe a little bit their personality, what also matters and may, mat- may matter even more is what they're doing today. Mm-hmm. And that's why it's really important to speak with people that are in the market day in, day out, because what may have been the case six months ago, and I think you know today when we're recording <laughs> this, you know, kind of end of October of, of 2022, 
if you would have said nine months ago, what does the market look like versus what does it look like now? It's an entirely different dynamic across almost all dimensions, yeah. whether it's fundraising, M&A, you know, public markets, so on and so forth. So I think it's also really important to get that current data from people that, that are having those conversations with buyers in the case of our firm on a daily basis. Absolutely. So now we talked about the preparation, even before you formally officially start the M&A process. Once you go down that route and you say, okay, now I'm ready, I want to start the process. One of the first things is probably to gather a list, a long list of potential buyers. Yeah. How do you go about that? Yeah, it's it's a combination of things. So um, in these types of, of processes or where you get to a point where there's more formal engagement with an advisor, the management team and the advisor need to work really closely together. Mm -hmm. It's critical because the management team you know, they're running the business, they're they're seeing the customer pain points, they're seeing how their solution meets those customer pain points, they're competing against others, they, they have this intimate market knowledge that no advisor can have mm -hmm. to that level. Um, now, advisors may have the knowledge of other companies or other companies th that they've sold in the space, but in terms of, you know, in the weeds, day to day, the management team brings that set of knowledge. And then the advisor brings an another, you know, kind of uh, scope of knowledge, if you will. And the ideal is that you get the combination of those two and get a better outcome combining both of them. Right. So um, what we often do is we actually have the management team put together their list of who they think the buyers are or could be. And we do the same. And we actually like to do that separately because we don't want to get in a room and all of a sudden it's groupthink. It's, hey, yeah. you said that, that's a great idea. And what we find is almost every time, almost, and I, I actually can't think of a time where it hasn't worked out this way, the management team always comes up with one or two companies that we don't think of. And we always have usually more than one or two that they haven't thought of. Yeah. And then what we're able to do is we're able to then go through and discuss each company to really come up with a targeted list. Mm -hmm. And I think this is something that we maybe do a little bit differently from some other firms. And, and to be fair, it does depend on the type of process you're running. So if you're running a big, broad auction for a company doing 50 million of revenue and 15 or 20 of EBITDA, the buyer list is going to be more extensive generally. Um, but I would say for companies that are that are not quite at that sort of scale, that are you know, maybe 5, 10, 15, 20 million, you tend to be a little bit more targeted. Mm -hmm. And it's the Pareto principle. So it's, you know, how do we get, you know, kind of the maximum out of this without having to go to 500 different companies, yeah. which takes a ton of time and can be very defocusing. So it's, it's through that uh, exercise where we usually come up with a list of, depending on the company, the sector, the circumstances, sometimes as few as 15 to 20. Mm -hmm. um, I would say more typically, you know, 30 to 50. And if it's, again, a bigger, broader process, it can be more than that. Um, but, but I think what you really want is something that's curated. You want every yeah. buyer or potential buyer to be on there for a reason. Um, and ev whether it's a strategic or a financial buyer. So if right. it's a financial you want to make sure that um, you know th their kind of interest fits your profile, vice versa. Strategic's the same thing. And once you have that list together, what do you then do with it? Do you do an initial outreach, or how does that work? Yeah, so usually the the advisors doing the initial outreach. Um, that's one of the things that we get paid to do is to know these people, keep in touch with these people, and be able to reach yeah. these people. But I will say there are even circumstances where we'll have, in certain cases, the management team do a first outreach to a particular buyer. And uh, one example of that would be that let's say that the management team has a really, really strong relationship with buyer X. 
And yeah. in order to maintain that relationship, because if we were to just call BuyerX directly and BuyerX has no idea what's going on and we <laughs> say, hey, this company's been approached and so on and so forth, it can lead to some awkwardness yeah. and actually can lead to, to a damaging of the relationship. And at the end, end of the day, M&A is a relationship business. It's still one person or group of people deciding to buy another company that's also full of people. So we really want to keep those relationships strong. So there, there's times where we'll coordinate that, where the management team will do you know, a select number of reach outs, but predominantly it's the advisor. Mm -hmm. And that's done through you know, emails, phone calls. Um, yeah. As much as I can, I like to do phone calls because I like to listen what the buyers have to say. Mm -hmm. So I like to be able to pitch the opportunity to them verbally. There's more back and forth, more, it's more interactive, uh, just like we're doing this more interactive versus just reading it, you know, via text. Yeah. And, um, I also then get to hear what they have to say, because even if they're not interested, they may give me some insight that I can then pass along to the client or that we're able to use elsewhere in the process. I mean, there's so many times where I've heard something from a buyer where I realize that, the company that we're marketing, their biggest competitor is also in market. And it's not something that we've known beforehand, right. but you kind of get that sense from what a potential buyer says. So there's always things that you learn by listening. And um, to the extent that you can talk on the phone, which I know is a bit old school, uh, it can be really helpful. But you get very valuable information out of that. That's you crucial. Do. You do. Once you reach out to potential buyers as an advisor, do you disclose the company name or do you reach out to them without disclosing too much information about the company in this first initial outreach? Yeah, it really depends on the type of process you're running. So um, there are some processes where you're going to keep the company name redacted or white labeled for a period of time until you get to a certain stage. There are other ones where you don't have the time to do that, or there's just not much benefit in doing that. Okay. So everything that, you know, when we start to work with companies, everything is, is bespoke. It's really, it's curated to that company and their circumstances. Mm -hmm. So for example, if the company has been approached by a potential buyer, you may not have time to, you know, run a, I'll say a fully prepared process in the sense that you're spending weeks preparing materials and developing a huge buyer list and meeting with the management team three times, you may have to move in 24, 48 hours. And so in that case, what you're preparing looks very different from something that's really more of a proactively uh, a thought through or planned process where you may have weeks or months to prep. Mm -hmm. And so the key is though, that you're matching, you know, what you're preparing with the circumstances. Yeah. And Talking about preparation, what documents should you have prepared and ready when you actually start this initial outreach process? So there's typically three main documents that you use. One of them is one that we've already described, which is the prospect list. Mm -hmm. So you're going to put together a list of the potential buyers. Uh, another one is there's typically a written document of sorts, um, an executive summary, information memorandum. Um, that is then supplemented with a financial package often for companies, especially companies that are a little more mature that have, you know, operating metrics, other financials that can be reviewed. And then, um, I guess a, a related one sometimes to the written one is what we call a management presentation, which in our case is often a PowerPoint, different firms do it differently. Mm -hmm. And, uh, that's typically leveraged later on in the process when, uh, you, you have buyers that the advisor has qualified, so you know what the nature of their interest is. You've probably had a couple of conversations with them. You know they're not committing to buy yet, but they're they're very interested. And then you start to integrate the management team in 
to present the opportunity. At the end of the day, they're not buying the advisor, they're buying the management <laughs> team in the company. So they're the right. ones that present the story even better than we do. And that's a great next question because once you have this initial outreach done, you wanna move like in a sales process to the next stage, right? So how do you move from this outreach to a more intimate conversation with interested buyers? Yeah, and again, it really depends on the type of process. So if I look at what I'm gonna call a structured process or an auction process, this is usually something that you're preparing ahead of time. So you're mm -hmm. saying, okay, we're gonna have all of these deadlines or milestones. We're gonna reach out typically to a larger number of buyers. They have to submit you know, indications of interest by a certain date or letters of intent by a certain date. We're gonna have management meetings during this period of time. Everything's very structured. That looks very different from a process where the company's received inbound interest from one or more potential buyers and you're, you're, you have to be reactive in a very short time period. Mm -hmm. So uh, in the case of, of, of um, uh, the, let's say the structured process, um, you have the ability to be more thoughtful about planning. And because you set that process up in advance, you're able to kind of walk people through that process over time. So they always know, and especially buyers that are more sophisticated, they're always gonna know, or they're gonna ask you, what's the next step, what's the next step, and you're able to lay that out. I think it's it's in a way a little bit more fun, but also there's more ambiguity when you get inbound interest. Mm -hmm. Because what you say, what the management team says to that buyer, even in those first conversations, is so critical in dictating the timing, dictating the next steps, even mm -hmm. dictating how much opportunity you have to reach out to others. And this is one of the the big mistakes that I see all the time, which is, and I understand why it's made, founders or management teams so often want the piece of paper. They want the offer in writing. And sometimes that makes sense, but in many cases it doesn't make sense right away. And that's because once somebody submits a piece of paper, the clock is ticking in terms of a time frame for you to respond. So, you know, do you have to respond within a day or two? Probably not. You have a, a period of time to work through that. But, you know, most buyers, especially ones that are more sophisticated, that do a lot of acquisitions, they're not going to let that letter of intent, let's say, sit out there for many, many weeks or months. And so by pushing for that piece of paper, you may have inadvertently closed off your window of opportunity to reach out to others. Mm -hmm. So um, so again, the, the timing is really dictated by the circumstance, but it's also really important in the cases where you've got some some you know positive actions coming in that, that would be driving that timing more quickly, that you engage with your board, your advisors, M&A advisor right from the get-go so that those first steps that are taken mean that you still have the kind of the best opportunity to reach out to whatever subset of the buyer universe you decide makes sense. I mean, this is where really the art comes in that you described at the beginning, right? Because chugging all these balls at the same time and to find the good timing, not closing on additional opportunities too early, that's really yeah. the art that you need to master. It is, it is. And you know, some of it's understanding too how buyers in different sectors work. You know, there's yeah. a big difference between dealing with strategic buyers versus private equity firms. Um, some buyers can move really quickly, some of them move really slowly. Mm -hmm. And that's where understanding, like I said, you know, earlier about the personality of these buyers is really important to get them aligned. Because if if you know you've got already a guy who's moving a buyer who's moving really, really quickly and you continue to push and accelerate them, you're probably gonna leave everybody else behind. Right. And once you're talking even about the possibility of making a deal together, there are of course certain things that you need to address before you reach an agreement. 
what are the key pillars there that you need to have an agreement on before you can actually sign the deal? Yeah, so typically, uh, once you have a couple of, of interested buyers or even one interested buyer, you start talking about what's called either a letter of intent or a term sheet, mm-hmm. which is uh, effectively a framework document for the deal. So it's not the you know, 80, 100, 200 page legal agreement uh, called the definitive agreement that outlines the entire transaction. It kind of gives you a, a summary. I mean, sometimes commercially, people would think of it as like an MOU, a memorandum of understanding, but it gives you the, the high level points of the deal. So things like, you know, the valuation or the purchase price that's being paid, um, what type of transaction is it? So are they buying a majority stake, a minority stake? Is it a stock deal? Is it an asset deal? What type of considerations being used? Is it a cash deal or is the the acquirer paying with stock? Mm-hmm. Um, those are the areas that people tend to focus on, but actually most LOIs have kind of a whole nother set of areas as well. Um, things such as holdback and escrow, so also known as indemnification, which is an amount of money that the buyer, either in the case of a holdback retains or in the case of an escrow, puts with a third party. Um, whereby when you sell the business, if there's anything that you haven't uh, presented that you should have or misrepresented during due diligence that results in damages for the buyer, that's their reclamation mechanism to, mm-hmm. to take some of that money back. Um, you'll also have things such as high-level earnout structures. So if the deal includes an earnout, typically you like to sketch out at least generally what that earnout is going to look like, mm-hmm. even if there's some more due diligence required to have a, a fully fledged earnout. Um, often in tech deals, you'll have employee matters. So, and this this can uh, take a bunch of different kind of forms and functions, but a lot of times you're looking at the key employees. So, Think of it, you know, and I'll use a deep tech company here as an example. If you've got a couple of people who spun out of a lab at ETH and all of a sudden the day after the deal, they all walk away, the buyer's going to have this technology, but they're going to have no idea how, how to use it, what to do with it, how to implement it. So there's typically employee matters that cover how many employees need to come over for what periods of time, uh, any particularly key employees, how long they need to stay. Um, the LOI also typically covers confidentiality and exclusivity. So letters of intent are almost always non-binding, mm-hmm. but there's an exclusivity period that will be present. Um, and most of these, again, if you have a really competitive process where you're able to get exclusivity out, that's great. But in most cases, buyers want a level of exclusivity to be able to do confirmatory diligence. Yeah. So during that period of time, you can't talk to any buyers. So you want to have multiple LOIs at the same time that you're negotiating, but ultimately you, yeah. you sign one. Uh, and then finally, it'll, it'll cover things like governing law, which actually, in the case of a lot of European companies, becomes quite a big discussion topic, especially if they're oriented towards a North American buyer set. Because North American buyers, one of the, the challenges with them at times is that they often want to use, like in the case of U.S. companies, U.S. law. Mm-hmm. And so you could have a, you know, a Swiss seller where you would say, well, of course, it's going to be Swiss law that you know dictates uh, the, the deal. But actually, you may have a U.S. buyer that says, we will only do this deal if it's under U.S. law. Yeah. And so that becomes, uh, even at the letter of intent stage, often a, a pretty intense negotiation point. And with U.S. buyers, I also heard that they often prefer to have an asset deal instead of a share deal. When they buy a foreign company, for example, here in Switzerland, is that still accurate or did that change a bit? Yeah, I, th- I think I wouldn't characterize that as being a U.S. buyer preference okay. specifically. Um, you'll see a lot of buyers prefer that because of the beneficial treatment that they get with an asset sale, um, especially private equity firms. When they buy assets, they can then depreciate those assets over time. Okay. 
Um, we always, always push for share sales. I mean, in Switzerland, there's a huge delta between a share sale vis-a-vis -vis an asset sale <laughs> in terms of the, you know, the tax implications. And that's the case in almost every geography. Yeah. So I, I, I haven't experienced that being as much of a U.S. buyer versus other buyer orientation. Mm -hmm. I would say in general, most of the deals that we do, with few exceptions, almost all of them, we get to be share deals, stock, okay. stock you know, purchase deals. Otherwise, the purchase price just increases dramatically, oh, right? It, it is. And also, you know, the, the challenge with an asset purchase beyond the tax implications is that there's still a company left. Right. So you have a shell company left that may still have liabilities. You have to shut it down. There's cost to doing that. And a lot of European yeah. countries in particular, there's complexity to doing that. It's not so easy yeah. just to shut the business <laughs> down and walk away. Yeah. So yeah, there's a lot of other challenges with asset deals. When negotiating all of that, the purchase price is, of course, one of the key aspects to find a good agreement on. What do you do if you have completely different understandings or ideas about the purchase price? Yeah, I <laughs> I think every client has a different understanding of price vis-a-vis -vis the buyer or, or almost. Um, it, it really depends. And, and I think, and again, I've said that so many times, but um, th there are certain times or instances where the differences in opinion on valuation are just so far apart, it doesn't really make sense to continue the discussion. Yep. So to use an extreme example, if I think my company is worth a billion francs and you're the buyer and you think it's worth a million, yeah. we are just light years apart. Yep. And, and people waste a lot of time in those circumstances, even negotiating. I mean, it's better just for people to, to stay friendly, yep. build a relationship and go their, go their separate ways, but keep in contact. I would say if you're within striking distance of each other, so you're not on totally different planets, um, there's a number of different strategies that you can use. And a lot of it depends on, from the seller's perspective, how much leverage you have. Mm -hmm. So if there's other potential buyers interested, that can be your best you know, competitive tool, if you will, to get that price up. Um, that, that's, you know, I always reference the carrot and the stick. The carrot is what can you dangle in front of the buyer that makes them want you more? The stick is, you know, what can you use to motivate the buyer if they're not moving quickly <laughs> enough or maybe they're not paying quite what you want to. Yeah. Um, the, the stick is often the competition. Mm -hmm. um, also, to the extent that you have cash or you have funding options, mm -hmm. you can always use the words, the word no. And, yeah. and so anytime that you say no, and I've got this other plan, whether it's again, you know, going with another another uh, bidder, mm -hmm. or we're going to keep running the business, or we're going to raise capital. All of those are, are competitive threats to a buyer. So those are all kind of the stick side. The, the carrot side, though, I've often found that oftentimes there, there's a lot more to a company than a buyer initially realizes. So they start to get to know a company through a certain prism. They they see a specific product. They meet with a specific division or person. They don't necessarily understand the bigger story or the other assets that that company has that could benefit that buyer over a longer period of time. And so one of the things when we get involved that we try to do right from the get-go is understand what's been communicated to the buyer to date and what are the other value drivers of the company? Are there any of these that we need to make sure get highlighted? Mm -hmm. We've had a lot of success actually doing this and, and getting purchase prices raised even in instances where there may not be further competition, just by saying, look, guys, there's so much more value here than what you, you've kind of, what your offer currently reflects. Here's what it is. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, it's a combination of those approaches. But again, the, the more uh, of those leverage points that you have, the more options that you have, the better position you're going to be to negotiate a really good deal. 
Do you have one or two examples for these value drivers to, you know, paint the bigger picture, the bigger potential? Yeah, oftentimes, especially with some of these deeper tech companies, and and again, you know, I feel like I'm all over the map here in terms of software, deep tech, it really, you know, depends. But for a lot of these deeper tech companies, you know, they may have multiple applications for their technology. And maybe they've decided for, you know, proximity reasons to focus in on automotive because there's a lot of automotive companies in, you know, Germany. Um, However, their technology may be applicable to many other segments. And so a lot of times a buyer may understand because they only have known this company in the context of, oh, they're they're, they're supplying X into the automotive space. They may not understand, wow, there's actually all these other markets this technology could open up for us. And then in some cases, those other markets that the company may have even made inroads into, they may have a design went into, but not yet revenue. They may have, so they may have a huge pipeline with like a lot of really active conversations. But if you just look at the financials, especially ones that are historically uh, oriented, you're not going to see any of that on there. And so it's making sure that, again, the buyer understands the full scope of the opportunity. This reminds me a bit of the fundraising process to really also highlight the potential where the company can go and, you know, draw that vision together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Due diligence is also something that you mentioned. Of course, a very important part of the whole M&A process. How does that happen? What do you need to prepare and also focus on in that part? So due diligence typically takes place after, at least confirmatory due diligence, after the LOI has been signed. So the way it, it typically works is you'll share some information before the LOI. And maybe just as a side note, it's always worth or almost always worth sharing some information before the LOI because the last thing you want is a buyer to put down an offer mm-hmm. that they can't stand behind because they know nothing about your company. No. So again, a, a mistake that sometimes I'll hear people say, well, just make an offer, make an offer. It's like, guys, it's hard for them to make an offer if they know nothing about your business. They don't know if it's $3 million of revenue <laughs> or $30 million of revenue. But what, what would you disclose there? Like revenue, one point? Or? Yeah, so it, it depends. Um, but, but I would say in general, uh, it depends on the stage of your company. It depends on the buyer. Are they a competitor? Are they not a competitor? What I think, what I think is important, though, is that there's symmetry between what you're sharing versus the buyer's level of expressed interest. So to give you an example... If a buyer comes and says, hey, and I I see this actually quite often as well, here's a list of 50 questions I want you to answer. It costs them nothing to do that. And oftentimes startups say, okay, and they actually go answer all 50. And I'm like, guys, you should have (laughs) never answered 20 of these. And by the way, I could have told you before you answered any of them, the way that this buyer values companies is off of EBITDA. You're not even EBITDA positive yet or profitable. There's no deal here. I could have yeah. saved you a lot of time. Yeah. Um, so, so I think it, it you know, there, there's kind of this process you go through with buyers where the more they learn about you, the more you learn about them, the more that you want to disclose. And the more serious they are, the more that as the seller you have to disclose, but also mm-hmm. the more that you can ask them, the more that you can understand how you fit into their plans, the more you understand the culture of their company. Yeah. So sometimes it makes sense to do uh, in the case where you have a lot of interest, you may want to share a little bit more before the LOI, because it's like once you sign that LOI and you go exclusive with somebody, you want to know that you're really picking the best partner. And so you may share a little bit more information in advance of that LOI to make sure that the partner that puts the LOI on the table that's the one that you sign is is really the best fit for you. Yeah. It's really the qualifying part, so yeah. to speak. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's, it's uh, sometimes you qualify a little more, sometimes it's a little bit less, mm-hmm. but then you get into after the LOI confirmatory due diligence, 
which is, I think if you, if you kind of surveyed a hundred people that have been through exits, at least 90 of them would say their least favorite part of the process. <laughs> it's not exciting. It's not sexy and it's incredibly time intensive. Uh, and so due diligence for those that have been through fundraising, imagine that times 10 for an M&A due diligence. And, and I've seen this change even over the course of my career. Buyers today are so much more diligent about due diligence than they were a decade ago, for right. example. And so even for deals that are quite small, in some cases, they'll bring in multiple third parties, accounting diligence, tax, IP. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're really, really strategics and financials uh, buyers heavily diligencing targets. And so it is a very intense period of time for the sellers. You're still having to run your business, which can be very, very difficult when you've got I, I just am working on a transaction right now where the diligence list in total, if you add all the questions from all the third parties is up to, I think, 682 questions. That's crazy. And so now not everyone gets to quite that level, but yeah. it just shows you the level of, of, of kind of extensive questioning that buyers will go to to make sure that they understand mm -hmm. what they're buying. And the more that the buyer feels that they're paying or the more risky they feel the deal is relative to the price, the yeah. more they're going to diligence it, right? Because right. There, there's a higher level of, of financial commitment from their side. Yeah. So due diligence is an area that our team is, is intimately involved with uh, throughout the process, but also an area where, you know, I think clients, some do really well and I think really shine and others really struggle because they're not well prepared. Yeah. And what are some red flags from a buyer's perspective in that due diligence process? Um, not being able to upload documents quickly would be a first one. Mm -hmm. So oftentimes you get these very large diligence lists. And by that point in the process, there's already a little bit of fatigue starting to set in. Typically, yeah. you've, you've just been through all the marketing phases, meetings. There, there's kind of this high that you get when you sign the letter of intent. And that lasts for about one day. And then you realize we're in due diligence and I have to do all this additional work. It's like, oh, we now close the, close the fundraising around and now the work starts. Now right? the work it's actually like, starts, yeah. exactly. So, um, so, so some companies uh, do a really good job of setting up an internal structure and process to be able to upload documents quickly, but also, uh, and really importantly, accurately. So, uh, and this is, this I mentioned our team's very involved in due diligence. One of the reasons for that, and we check every document, is because there have been so many times, we catch a lot of little stuff, mm -hmm. but there have been times where we found really big errors. And, and wow. the example that always comes to mind for me is about four or five years ago, there was, um, it was a US-based company that we were selling, but they had included in all of their board minutes very detailed notes of all of the M&A, a summary, if you will, of the M&A conversations we'd had with different buyers. Mm -hmm. And they actually had listed in the board minutes all of the offers and what people had offered. So had we uploaded that and shown it to the buyer, they would have seen that they were paying about 60% more than the next <laughs> highest offer. What do you think would have happened the oh, next God. day had they seen that? <laughs> All of, magically, the offer would have been uh, been cut by a significant amount. Yeah. So, um, so, so you get these types of things where you know, yes, it's a lot of work to do, but you also have to make sure you're doing it right. And again, mm -hmm. some companies have a really good process; they, they've got the right people in place, and others really struggle. If I had to generally characterize the the companies where the founder is still involved in all elements of the business are going to really struggle because yeah. that person only has so many hours in the day. Yeah. Um, I will also say I have had a couple of clients over time where uh, they have holidays or other things planned during due diligence, and that also creates a problem. Yeah. So 
Um, there's probably a better time to go on holiday than during the middle of one of the most intense, you know, processes of your life. Absolutely. Of course, there might also be things that come up or like potential legal actions or things that are just not just right. How proactively should you communicate that to the potential buyer or how do you differentiate what you should proactively communicate and whatnot? Yeah, it's it's a really interesting question and it probably depends on what the the topic is. So in general, you have to answer the questions they ask. So if they ask, is there any, you know, threatened or or pending or ongoing litigation and there is, you have to disclose that. There are certain times though where strategically it may make sense to disclose something beforehand. So for mm -hmm. example, Let's say you've got um, a scenario where you've got four interested buyers and you're, you're even pre-LOI. And let's say that you have you know one customer that's 20% of your revenue, which is fairly high, but not like you know ridiculously high mm -hmm. relative to some. It may actually make more sense for you to disclose that at that point, because if one of those buyers says, look, for us, we just have kind of a a firm-wide view that customer concentration risk, anything over 10% is a no-go for us. Okay. It's better to know that now so that you don't pick the one buyer of the four, right. sign an LOI with them for them to find out two weeks into due diligence that this is a non-starter. Yeah. So there, there are certain times where certain risks that appear, it makes sense to pull forward from, from like a strategic perspective. And mm -hmm. there's other times where it makes sense to, to push it off as long as possible, especially if it's something that, that's solvable. So there are times where there's an issue that comes up where it's like, look, this is going to be solved within the next week. If we do this, mm -hmm. it probably doesn't make sense to disclose that if in fact you're able to solve it. Now, again, it depends on where in the deal you are and there's many other factors that play in, right. but that's a, a conversation that you should have you know, with your advisor as soon as those risks are identified. And ideally, if there's risks that you know going into the process, a good advisor mm -hmm. is actually going to... Uh, uh, flex the process to the, to, to, the, to, um, to the extent necessary based on those risks. So if there's certain things where, again, like the customer concentration example, they may say, hey, this is something we should disclose if we've got a bunch of interested people now so that we can you know, make a, a good decision on which party to partner with. Absolutely. And once you're post due diligence, when do you actually realize that you're ready to sign, that you're ready to sell? <laughs> So during due diligence, you'll typically get about half, two thirds of the way through and the buyer will start to prepare the definitive agreements. Mm -hmm. So those are unlike the letter of intent, which is the framework document, often a couple of pages, two, four, six pages long or, or term sheet. The definitive agreements are many dozens of pages up to hundreds of pages long. Right. And with US buyers, almost always over a hundred pages. And uh, those are the documents that actually lay out that when you sign the documents, lay out all of the terms and everything in the deal. So the LOI is typically non-binding, meaning that if there's things that are found during due diligence, there can be changes made, mm -hmm. but then the definitives lay it all out. And that typically comes in the form of a share purchase agreement or a merger agreement. That is most of the time, not all the time, but most of the time drafted by the buyer's legal counsel. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is where I'll put in a plug for as a seller, you have to make sure that you have really good uh, M&A counsel. So, um, and what I mean by that is somebody who's experienced in doing technology deals. And in the case where your buyer is international, cross-border technology deals. And this is an area where I, I often will see companies try to uh, cut corners or cut costs a little bit and say, oh, we've used 
You know, a friend of mine's been helping our company with legal work for the last five years. He's done some M&A 15 years ago. He can help us. Uh You need a professional firm. You need somebody who's going to be on call basically 24-7 and and really has the expertise to support you. Um, So you you get to a point where that document is negotiated, you know, back and forth many times. The advisors are typically involved as well, especially on the commercial points. And then once both sides have reached agreement where they're happy to sign, then the Mm -hmm. document's in signable form. And I know this really heavily depends on the case and the people involved, but is there a certain duration that you can say that's how long an M&A process usually takes on average from initial outreach to signing the deal? We usually tell people prepare for six to nine months. It can take shorter than that, especially if you have inbound interest. It can also take longer than that if COVID happens in the middle of the process or there's so many other things, (laughs) both company specific, but also uh, macro. Mm -hmm. Um, That being said, within typically four to six, eight weeks of kicking off a process, you tend to have a really good idea for how things are going. So even though the whole process, if you go end to end, is typically six to nine months with Mm -hmm. outreach, negotiating, diligence, definitive, signing, et cetera, Usually within a month and a half, two months is the advisor. You've got a really good sense for how things are trending. And so, you know, sometimes that's, and and hopefully things are trending really well. I think we're, we're on track to get something done here. Other times things are not trending well, or other times, I mean, you'll have instances where clients lose their biggest customer, you know, during a process and decide to put it on hold for a period of time. There's, you know, many things like that that can happen too. And despite the huge time investment that we now learned by talking about the process, there's, of course, also financial investment, right? You have to pay for legal fees, you have to prepare documents, etc. Is there also a certain range where you say, this is approximately, on average, what you should be able and willing to invest as a company into an M&A process? Yeah, the so our fee, um, I'll start with ours. Ours is mostly a success fee-based model. Mm-hmm. So we are totally aligned with our clients and that when the client makes money and the deal is closed, that's when we get paid. Um, for the other fees, it tends to work a little bit differently. And every deal, again, is different in this regard. But mm-hmm. typically, to your point, uh, with legal fees, you do owe uh, at least some portion, if not all of that legal bill, irrespective of whether or not the deal closes. And the the legal bills vary greatly across geographies. So yeah. U.S. lawyers tend to be a bit more expensive. Yeah. Um, also, though, in a lot of these cross-border deals, you're dealing with multiple law firms. So you may have, the buyer may have their local counsel. Let's say it's a, um, a, a U.S. buyer. They'll have their U.S. corporate counsel, maybe even internal counsel as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, then they'll have maybe Swiss, Swiss counsel that they've retained if they're buying a Swiss company. And similarly for you as the seller, you may have your local counsel, but you may need to, if your local counsel doesn't have the expertise doing a deal under U.S. law, for example, you may need to retain a U.S. law firm or they may be partnered with a U.S. firm in order to make sure you get the right advice. That sounds expensive. It can be. It can be. (laughs) Now, the deal closed. We signed the deal. What happens after the deal closed? I mean, you know, usually you think, okay, it's time to celebrate. You certainly should do that, but there's also more work to be done because usually you have an earnout, you have decisions to make whether you should stay as a founder or not, even after the earnout period. What happens after the closing of the deal? Yeah, so I'll, I'll split signing and closing because they're actually two different things. So signing the deal is great. You mm-hmm. sign the piece of paper, 
but closing the deal is what matters the most. That's where you get the money. That's where the deal is officially done. Between those two periods, there's usually what are called closing conditions. So sometimes you'll have a simultaneous sign and close. You sign the deal and the deal closes the same day Mm -hmm. or at the same time. But to the extent that there's a bifurcated sign and close, you'll have closing conditions that you have to satisfy. So for example, if you have customer contracts where you have to notify the customer that you are being acquired, mm-hmm. or you have to get their, you know, the consent of a landlord to assign the lease to the buyer. Yeah. So there's there's a, a set of steps that most most of the time are fairly administerial and kind of painful because you're really tired by that point, yeah. um, but obviously motivated to, to get that done. Once the closing happens, um, everybody breathes a big sigh of relief because it is a both a marathon and a sprint. It's a marathon in the sense that six to nine months is a long time, but it's it's filled with a bunch of sprints. And especially when you're at the end, it's just an all out sprint. So people are typically tired. So a lot yeah. of times people, you know, need a, a couple of days just to catch up on sleep, recuperate, you know, do some yoga, do whatever it is that you you do to <laughs> relax and, and de-stress. Um, but then, like you noted, you know, you're you're typically working then for a new company. Um, I would say in most uh, most transactions, the management team or a subset at least of the management team is continuing on with the buyer. Mm-hmm. In the case of a lot of deep tech companies, that's a necessity. The, there's yeah. key employees that have to go along with the the buyer for often at least you know two to four years, and they're heavily incented to do that through mm-hmm. you know stock units or options or other sorts of retention mechanisms. But even in cases where you know maybe it's not deep tech, maybe it's software, you know usually those relationships that the buyer has formed with the management team are are a part of why uh, they're buying the company. They're a part of the value, and so they want to make sure that you know the great business that you've created that you don't walk out the door the next day and they inherit you know maybe what's a good business, but something where they don't understand the people, the dynamics, mm-hmm. the customers. So typically, uh, again, every deal is a bit different, but typically founders or management team members are staying for at least a couple of years. Yeah. And I have clients, by the way, that you know sold a decade ago that are still with the buyer. Sure. So yeah. some people you know, end up at the buyer, love it, and are like, hey, I'm doing this the rest of my career. Amazing. Others say, big corporate life is not for me. And after <laughs> a couple of years, they go and start a new company. Yeah, sure. So now we learned more about the whole process, basically from beginning to the end. Now, of course, many founders ask themselves the question, what should I do myself and where should I get help? Because the work is immense, as we just yeah, learned. It is. And and I think, um, I think, and I may have referenced this already, it's really another full-time job. So yeah. as a founder, not only do you have to focus on, or, or as a management team member, focus on the core business, you also have to make sure that the people that are in the company can compensate for you when 50, even 100% of your time is dedicated to M&A. Mm-hmm. So that's why it's really important. I, I said it's challenging most like during due diligence for founders that are involved in everything because they simply run out of hours in a day. Yeah. The companies that tend to be more successful in getting through M&A processes with the least amount of pain, I don't think it's ever painless, but the least amount are ones where they really build the capability of the people below them, mm-hmm. where those people can continue to run the business, they're fairly autonomous, yeah. and that allows the founders or management team members to then dedicate a lot of their time and attention to M&A. Mm-hmm. So does that answer the question? Yeah, I think it, it's very helpful to get that perspective. And, you know, it's also a lot of stress and pressure involved in the process. You're always like, it could be over the next day or the next hour even. How do you deal with that on a personal level? Because that's 
an additional full-time job, but also so much more stress and pressure on you on top of the existing business. So how do I deal with it or how do the how, how do the, the founders founder? deal with that? Yeah, it's really interesting. And I think this is one of the the cool parts of the job is um, in, in doing this job, you get to develop relationships with people during extreme highs and extreme lows. And when you're working with people for, you know, as long as you do through an M&A process, or especially if you've met them years in advance, you really get to see that transition over time. And you get to see how people react, you know, when they're at the highest of highs, you know, when you get the offer or you get the inbound or whatever it is. And then when something goes wrong, you get the lawsuit right before you're about to sign a deal. (laughs) Hopefully not. and uh, but it's it's through that kind of uh, there, there's a special bonding that occurs, you know, through these difficult circumstances. And so different founders deal with it differently. I would say, you know, a lot of them try to, to the extent that they can maintain some type of balance, you know, so whether it's they do, you know, they play uh, uh, what we would call soccer or football once a week yeah. or they do they do meditation or they, you know, they, they try to maintain some type of balance. Honestly, there's other founders I've worked with that just go into like hibernation mode. Mm-hmm. It's just for the next X number of weeks, months, this is my life. This is all I'm doing. I'm eating, you know, sleeping, drinking, breathing, M&A. This, yeah. is, this is my chance of a lifetime. And, and things really kind of fall out of whack. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't know if there's a right answer. I think a lot of it depends on your personality, um, but it is hard. I mean, it's, it's something that's, like you said, stressful. It requires a huge amount of, of time commitment, but also it can be for a lot of, of founders and management team members, life-changing, not just in terms of the money that they get at close, but also their career trajectory. Mm-hmm. Because what I found is that if you've been able to successfully exit your company, whether the exit was you know mediocre, good, or great, if you go to start another business, first of all, the knowledge that you've gained from the first time around, you're going to be light years ahead of where you were five, eight years earlier. Mm-hmm. But second of all, the, the way that you're going to be able to engage with others in the ecosystem, whether that's you know VCs if you're raising money, whether that's partners, customers, the level of credibility that you're going to have is going to be so so much enhanced by the fact that you've actually, you know, built, scaled and sold successfully one of your prior businesses. So, you know, I've seen many times second time, third time what I'll call repeat founders able to go and raise, you know, more money, more quickly at a better valuation in, you know, half the period of time that it took them the first time around. So, it, yeah. there there's also a benefit from a career perspective. Absolutely. And I like the analogy that you said before, uh, basically to summarize it, it's like you're running a marathon at the pace of running a sprint. Yep. And I think that's just mind blowing if you think about it. Yep. Your team at Minalta Advisors complete over 200 transactions uh, all over the globe, basically. And now that we got to know the process a bit better, what are some of the key things that people misunderstand or get wrong about the whole M&A process? Yeah, there's so many different ways that I could take this question. So this may not be the most coherent response, but I'll, I'll pick a couple of different topics. Um, one of them I've already referenced a bunch, which is I think people underappreciate the amount of foresight and pre-planning that's required. Mm-hmm. I think they always focus on the offer or the process and, and not as much on these early activities. Um, within the IT space, which is again where we focus I think another thing that people don't fully appreciate is that still today, about 95% of all tech M&A exits are done for under $200 million. 
And so you will, of course, hear about the huge, you know, IPOs or huge M&A exits. Those dominate, you know, the Wall Street Journal and the, the, the headlines. But the reality is that's not most exits. Mm -hmm. And I think when you, and I could speak about that for much longer, but when you follow that line of thinking down for a lot of sectors, it really does start to uh, uh, provide some input into how you should think about growing your business and really what those good exit windows are for your business. Mm -hmm. um, and, and finally, I think uh, windows of opportunity. I think that a lot of these, these sectors uh, for companies in the sector, there are specific windows of opportunity that can be really attractive where you can get really good exits. And there are other times where within those sectors, you might not be able to get any exit. And I think you know now is a great example of that. If you go back a year ago, and just to use one sector as an example, a lot of these fast delivery companies were having money thrown at them hand over fist. It was mm -hmm. just raising hundreds of millions or billions. And now most of those are scaling back operations, cutting employees, closing down markets. What a difference a year makes. Yeah. And so I think for for you know founders, for management team members, it's really important to, to always have your radar up to say, okay, not just what are we doing? Like, yes, uh, having a plan is great. Executing against that plan is is fantastic, necessary. But what is the market doing? Because again, you could end up building a bigger business that you sell for much less five years from now than possibly the opportunity that's in front of you today. Yeah. And uh, that's again, where it's really important to have good advice all around the table, not just an M&A advisor, but also board members and, and other trusted friends and advisors who have been through the process before too. I think that's the perfect way to end today's conversation. John, thank you so much for these valuable and very insightful practices, advices, and, and yeah, insights just that you shared with us today. It was a pleasure talking to you and all the best and lots of success with hopefully many more exits down the road. Perfect. Thank you for having me. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, you can support us by rating our show on Apple Podcasts. This way, we can reach an ever-growing number of aspiring entrepreneurs.